Welcome to the PhD Addicted to Research podcast. My name is Marva and I'm an SSA-funded PhD student at the University of Exeter. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about transitioning from PhD to postdoc. And I have two postdoctoral researchers here with me today, Carol and Bashak. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hey everyone, thanks Marva. So my name is Carol and I'm based at King's College London. I'm a researcher at the additions department and a teaching fellow at the psychology department. And my research interest is in behavioral interventions for the treatment of addiction. Great. Uh, so thank you for having me. Um, my name's Bashak and I am a research associate in the addictions department at King's. And my work focuses on clinical experimental studies on better understanding opioid overdose and mortality. So thanks for joining us today. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your current roles and what they involve? So I've kind of got two current roles at the minute. So I submitted my PhD last September and I was awarded the SSA Bridging um, Transitional Grant. And that started in November time. So right up from November until just this month, I have been, um, I've been, I've been doing my transitional grant. However, I have now taken on a secondment, so I'm based at the psychology department at King's. So my role there um, is a teaching fellow. So I'm involved in uh, running modules in the undergraduate psychology degree. That's for ten months, as I said, and then I'll go back to finishing off my research on my transitional grant. So my my role at the minute is a little bit, yeah juggling two things kind of at once yeah <laughs> yeah a bit of everything yeah that's interesting because it'll be interesting to hear about um the research and the teaching aspects of of postdoctoral positions yeah what about you Bashak? um so yeah my um current role involves uh, as a kind of research associate in the department um i'm running a, a kind of experimental study um that was actually paused because of covid um so i'm hoping to restart that and that and my role within that is kind of from all all aspects really uh, from recruitment to data collection and, and and everything else um and then i'm also working on developing plans and setting up future studies um on overdose testing and i'm about to embark on a new role actually as a research fellow um and that's going to be mainly kind of based on like wearable technology, potential detection, intervention and overdose events. So I'm quite excited about that. Um, But yeah. Congrats. Yeah, wow, that sounds really cool. Yeah, congrats. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about transitioning from a PhD to postdoc. And I think this is something that uh, practically every PhD student worries about. So it'll be interesting to hear from you um, if you could tell us a bit about the pathway from PhD to gaining an academic position. So uh, thinking about some of the different routes that people can take. Once you've finished your PhD and you've decided to stay within academia and kind of build a career, an academic career, I think there's a number of different positions that you can go for. And really, it depends on what your end goal is going to be. Um, but first of all, I should say that there's a lot of different names given to these positions, so it can get a little bit confusing. And I know that in different countries they refer to these positions in, in different ways. So it's probably worth saying that for our international listeners, which I know there are many. <laughs> I should say that, That's a very good plug, Carol. Yeah. <laughs> I should just say that um, the way I'll define these rules are, are based on the UK system. 
And um, so first mm-hmm. of all, you know, we can think about postdoctoral research positions. And if you get a postdoc position, typically that means that you're employed by a principal investigator to work on a particular project. And this project will be, you know, will probably be funded by a grant that the PI has has obtained. And while you'll have a lot of independence within that particular project, ultimately the PI calls the shots. Um, so so you're working under that that PI to conduct this piece of research. And for these positions, you you apply for them. They'll be advertised through the university, and you can apply for them, and you compete with others to get that position to work at that university. On the other hand, thinking about research fellowships, um, you as a researcher are the PI on that project. So you'll most likely mm-hmm. have a mentor or a sponsor who will support you academically, but you will be the person who devises that research plan, who obtains the funding. You'll be hiring staff if it's feasible, if your project um, has money for you to do that and if you need to do that. So ultimately, you you will be the person calling the shots as opposed to mm-hmm. um, you know, an academic um uh, supervisor or somebody who would be over you. Um, so in contrast to the postdoc positions, it's up to you to select what institute that you want to work at. So if you have obtained this fellowship, this this award, then it's up to you to pick what university you want to, to work at. And I know some universities can try and make themselves a little bit more attractive than others. So it's, and this is something that I wasn't actually aware of until a few months ago, but some universities can offer you a permanent position for once your fellowship ends and that's kind of to entice you to, to take your to take Ooh. your grant and go to work at that particular university so that's definitely one thing to look out for if you're thinking of doing a fellowship look to see um what will be what will be offered to you at the end of that three four five year fellowship whatever length of time it is because some of the posts will um will have that position that permanent position afterwards Sorry, I'm just interrupting. That's really useful to know. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know about that. And I think one thing I was curious about is um. So at what point can you choose um which university you want to do the fellowship in? Because my impression was that you'd have to choose whilst you're applying. But perhaps that depends on uh the type of fellowship you're applying for. Yeah, I think in my experience, it has been you decide what institute you want to do your fellowship at um, during the application process. So you will have to identify who your sponsor, the sponsor institute is going to be, who your mentors will be. Um, so you have to have the institute on board for you to, to carry out your fellowship there at that institution. Mm-hmm. However, I would imagine that if you have been awarded the money, it's an investment in you. It's not an investment in you to conduct your research at that particular institute. Mm-hmm. So if you've been granted an award um, and something happens or you decide to, to go to a different institute, I would imagine it's not a case if you've lost all the funding, you've lost that opportunity, but there may be a, you know some grounds where you can justify moving to a different institute afterwards because ultimately they're investing in, in you. I don't know if that's 100% correct, but I would imagine it's the same with a, mm-hmm. you know, a PhD. They're investing in you in that project, not necessarily the, the university. I think it's just about giving the funders confidence that whatever institute you decide to to do your fellowship at that you're going to be supported in a way that will will be conducive to your work so you know you will Mm -hmm. get all the support that you need um uh to to carry out your research in a way that's that's needed um and the fellowship positions are typically research solely research focused so there won't be as many teaching opportunities there and for you to feel that you will not be um you'll not be asked to do as many teaching responsibilities, I guess. <laughs> but I wanted also to mention 
um, a teaching fellow position because as I mentioned in my intro so I've just recently taken on a teaching fellow position and quite often we don't think of it as um, a postdoc opportunity but really if you wanted to stay within academia and potentially pursue a career as a lecturer or a professor taking on a teaching fellow role may be um, a good stepping stone for that and really it's obviously much more teaching focused than, than research but I know for, for my position it's not it's not all teaching so maybe 80% of my time will be teaching and then 20% of my time I can focus on my own research interests so mm -hmm. you're not yeah you don't lose sight of, of your research if you wanted to get some teaching experience as well. Yeah yeah I think that's an important one to highlight because perhaps it's not one that people often think about um, and also you know in academia at some point you will probably be engaging in some sort of teaching so it's good to have that experience as well. Um, Bashak does that sort of um, correspond to your own experience in terms of the pathway you've taken? Um, not necessarily my experience of my pathway, but it's very like very informative and comprehensive um, view of you know the different options. Um, there are many different options, I think, but it's it for me it was kind of um, I guess more based on what I was like personally motivated to do. Um, I did I did do, apply for fellowships, but I wasn't successful. And it not it's not because I, I didn't want to do them. I think they're very, very valuable. Um, and I think, like Carol said, they do... Um, it kind of gives you that individual independence. Um, but I think generally be, going into a postdoc, you, you're kind of expected to have some independence anyway in your thinking, in your, in, um, in your ideas and things like that. Um, so, yeah. Can I just build on what Bashak said there? Sorry about it be, fellow, fellowships being so competitive. They are, and I think typically um, people who are awarded fellowships are maybe, I don't know, five years postdocs. So they're typically for people mm -hmm. who are that, you know, further within their their postdoc career. Um, and they are super competitive and there's not that many, they're few and far between, I guess. Um, so typically the people will finish their PhD and, and uh, work on a, project where you've got a, a PI has secured the funding, taken in the funding and you're working within that particular project um, and then a few years down the line people may think about doing a fellowship then afterwards. So it's definitely not something mm -hmm. you think, okay so will I do a postdoc or will I do a fellowship? Yeah, it's not, yeah definitely. Sometimes it's not an option. Mm -hmm. It's it's not usually a, a straight after PhD option, you need to build some experience working as a postdoc and also, I guess, with a fellowship, you do need to um, sort of come up with your own research plan and you need to be able to perhaps supervise some other early career researchers um, working with you. So it does require a bit more experience. Yeah. Should we talk about the opportunity that the SSA Bridging Bank can kind of yes. work then? It just seems to fit naturally. <laughs> I mean, in a way, um, that's a really helpful thing because, you know, we've talked about how um, the fellowships are not, aren't usually straight after a PhD. So, you know, what is, between a, what is between a PhD and a postdoc? What is between a PhD and a fellowship? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the benefits are really, really, like it's far reaching because you, like, okay, we all know that a PhD is so intense as well. And... Mm -hmm. Like if you can even see the end of a PhD when you're doing it, which I couldn't really see, when you're then <laughs> finished, um, it's like wow, okay, um, 
what do I do now? And like, I think that unless you have pre-prepared plans and things set up, which is, which is great, um, it, it, the, the bridging fellowship or the bridging scheme really does allow you to, um, be able to, to put all your ideas together, um, to kind of take the next step, isn't it? I don't know if you, Mm -hmm. if you feel that's too Carol with, with your experience, but that was certainly like how I felt with, with the, um, scheme. Yeah, I do for my, so my fellowship, the idea, no, the research idea, the proposal that I want to put together, that I have put together in recent months um, for a fellowship uh, project, a lot of the work that's needed to go into that to inform that fellowship application um, was not conducted during my PhD. So a lot of the preliminary research that I needed to conduct um, has happened during this transitional stage. So from my from my PhD finishing um, and through the SSA transitional grant, I've been able to conduct preliminary research um, that has enabled me then to put together my fellowship application. So you're not always going to be in a position to put that fellowship application together immediately after your PhD. You need mm-hmm. some period of funding where you can um, invest more time and energy into getting some answers that are, are needed to inform um, your fellowship mm-hmm. project. So yeah, without, without exactly. it, it's, it's, it's nearly impossible, I mean, without it. And, and also it takes you so long to secure a fellowship. I mean, yeah. it can take, can take three, four years to secure a fellowship. And especially if the funding calls come around, say, once a year. I know with the SSA, um, the fellowship scheme that they have comes around once a year. Um, and it takes you maybe six months at least to put together that fellowship application. So it's quite a long period of time. So you need something to support you during that time. I think, yeah, there are a couple of important points there. Um, I've heard, you know, when I went to some sessions about um, how to get a fellowship, they were always talking about um, the importance of pilot data to support your fellowship application. So, um, yes, doing uh, doing a transitional position um, or like a bridging fund that the SSA provides, something like that can be really helpful to get that data. But I think also uh, having the time to build on your ideas after your PhD and to prepare a fellowship application is also really helpful. Like I'm in my final year and I'm in the writing up process, but I can't imagine doing that alongside writing up a you know fellowship or grant application. So I think that's a really useful time um to be able to do something like that yeah definitely and the and the bridging scheme application i from what i remember is 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 quite a good good application process like um and it i don't i think the aim is that it shouldn't have been it, it shouldn't be too strenuous to put it together and that's what's really advantageous about it as well Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. And I think uh, what I remember is that you can submit any time throughout the year once you've submitted your PhD. Is that correct, Carol? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's correct. And mm. another thing is, although you can't submit it, you can't submit your application until you have submitted your PhD thesis. Um, yes. The turnaround time, so the outcome, um, I remember I found out maybe within three or four weeks. So it's super, super fast. So you're not waiting a long yeah. period before you actually get the outcome off it. Um, mm-hmm. That's really good. Um, so we, we've talked a little bit about the SSA's um, bridging scheme. 
Um, can you tell us a bit, a bit about perhaps when you started considering your post PhD career and what were some of the important things that you considered when you were um, in that process? I to I'll say this again. I did say it before, but I was I think that doing the PhD is such an intense thing, and I was so concerned with finishing the PhD. So, like, I think I you know I was quite anxious about my timeline and things like that. Um, but I did have discussions with my supervisors about the next stages and I did apply for the scheme, the SSA scheme before the end of my PhD. Or I think it was, I think it was yeah. around that time or just after I submitted. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's important, I think, to, to think about it, but it is really difficult to do so at the same time. So, um, and the other thing, like, I never really, you know, I go knew that I wanted to stay in academia and I wanted to continue yeah. um, in the similar uh-huh. field of my PhD because I, kind of, yeah. I kind of have a personal interest in it. Um, but what I didn't anticipate was a global you know, pandemic yeah. and having a baby. And, you know... I think what I'm getting is that it's good to have some ideas about what you want to do, but don't try, to, don't be too attached to certain plans because you know there's always that unpredictability and uncertainty of life. And um... yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, it's a, it, it. So I think that like I have sympathy for the fact that it's a PhD is such an intense thing, but um, but you know there are there are mm-hmm. certain things that can like you can think about like what is it that interests you what are the areas that you know you you would l- like to continue doing as you know if if the acad- academia is the thing that you want to do um and also like some opportunities do come up um like even like projects that go on in your department you might not even know about um something like a, having a coffee with someone or mm-hmm. virtual coffee is um has untold benefits um, yeah so yeah and and just generally even just getting advice from people informally I think that's really like crucial I remember talking to a lot of different people who had just finished their PhD or you know well into their postdocs and just having chats with them it's harder to do now because everything's on teams but that really was quite helpful for me to think about the next steps yeah that's really useful and I think there's just a lot of pressure about knowing what exactly you want to do and having exact plans around it but I think it's kind of reassuring to know that you can take it a little bit easier have some ideas talk to some people but I think my understanding is that during the PhD it's normal to have a bit of tunnel vision about the PhD at some point itself uh, because the writing as you say is is so intense um, and it's hard to think beyond that sometimes yeah Shag summed up really nicely. I think talking to other people within your department is key and communicating with your supervisors. So if you know you want to stay within your department and you want to continue working with your supervisors, let them know. You know, don't be too shy mm-hmm. to say, once I finish my PhD, I want to stay working here, you know, I want to stay working with you. Can we work on a project together? If you know that your supervisor is putting in a grant application for something, ask can you get involved? Ask can you be put onto mm-hmm. the project with them? Um, and don't be too shy in saying that. And I guess just to be completely honest, if, you know, for me, I finished my PhD with ideas about what other research projects I wanted to pursue in the future, that's not going to happen immediately after your PhD. You know, that's going to be a couple mm-hmm. of years down the line by the time you put your you know, project together. As I said, it takes a long time. Um, so there will be a period of time where, you know, when you finish your PhD to you secure money to do your own personal research project. Um, 
And if you do want to stay within the department, stay within your research area, you need to have these conversations. You need to let people know that you are keen to. And it's just about networking, making sure that if a job comes up, that people within the department know, you know, know that you're actively looking for a job when your mm-hmm. PhD finishes, when you might be available to take on work. Definitely, yeah. Um, and I think something we have talked about in the past is obviously um, in the pandemic, it's harder to meet meet people and network. But I think um, it, people are happy to kind of chat to people online as well. You know, people are usually open to getting some emails and helping people in a similar position. So I think it's a good idea, you know, not to hesitate to contact people just because we don't often see each yeah, other in absolutely. person. Yeah. And also, you'd be surprised that... Um, People really, really like um, having the interest, having people interested in their work. <laughs> like, it's you know, and, and being on like the other end of it. If someone reaches out to me saying they're interested and want to talk about the work, or if there are any opportunities, I'd be delighted. You know, <laughs> um, so so I think that, and and so as, as I was saying about the kind of department, it's it's more just about like that idea that you know you've spent a long time in, in within uh, working with colleagues or working within that department and I'm pretty sure that most departments would want their PhD students to continue and would want to carry on working with them so if that is what you're interested mm-hmm. in and there's opportunity to do so that like don't underestimate how much might be going on um, so I think that's quite important yeah definitely So, you know, we've talked about how to plan for your post-PhD career, but um, something that doesn't often get mentioned is how to manage your personal life alongside your career, because, you know, um, academia or PhDs are not our whole life. So what was your experience of doing that? And have you had any challenges along the way where, yeah, where perhaps personal life has made it difficult for jobs or vice versa? So I'm comfortable to share to share my experience and challenges along the way. So in terms of applying for fellowships, I know some of the funding bodies are very keen um, for you to, well, it's a training opportunity. So whenever you do um, one of these advanced fellowships, like say for the NIHR, the Wellcome Trust, um, they're very competitive and they, they expect if you want to conduct um, a research project where say you're investigating a new um, clinical intervention or something, they they almost expect for you to um, to acknowledge where that intervention has say for instance been pioneered or even if it's a new piece of technology or a new equipment that you want to use where has that um, been established and potentially to seek some training from from wherever that is so say for instance Mm -hmm. so in my experience my research um, is around remote contingency management so a lot of it has been developed in the states Um, so I know Mm -hmm. that within my fellowship applications the funders will expect for me want to you know expect for me that I have put down there that I want to to go to the states for x length of time to get some training in that particular application um and that makes it particularly difficult because not you know we're not all in a position where we can you know it's okay if the institute is within the UK and that's where you're based at then you know a few weeks or whatever you can travel but um, to move to the states for a few months, that that could be quite challenging. Um, so I feel That's like it's quite a commitment. Yeah, quite a commitment, yeah. <laughs> but I feel like you know, I have definitely, in my experience, I've definitely felt that, and I've got a fellowship application that's currently being um, um, being considered at the minute, and 
and I know that it's probably not going to be as strong as other applicants because I'm not willing to uproot my life um, for you know, six to nine months to move to the States to, to, to develop my training um, because of my personal life, because I like stability and I don't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> um, so I think that's quite that's quite challenging and I think that's just something that um yeah I'm not I'm not sure if I need to say any more on that but I, um that's that's definitely something that I have experienced so mm, I think it's entirely normal to expect to have some sort of stability and you know I think when I asked that question I was perhaps thinking more within the country which can also be <laughs> quite a commitment but moving across the across to the US for six nine months that's yeah that's a lot um yeah what about you Bashak yeah it's it's nice that you're sharing that Carol as well it's like it's quite it is I can understand uh in in theory on paper ideally we would all want to be able to travel the world to get all the expertise and you know um and and network and and do all of those things um but also we do have lives and mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and like, you know, just a, a reminder yeah i mean yeah we we have to live our lives as 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 you know in, as well i mean it's difficult because um i think sometimes it really does come down to like personal preferences as well i think some people really like that um aspect of academia because it can be you can be a, a well, probably not at the moment, but you can be a jet-setting academic if you wanted to be, um, and yeah, and for me, for sure, like I, you know, having a baby, uh, <laughs> like a, a year or so after I finished my PhD was, it's mm. obviously a delightful thing, but um, you know, it's quite daunting because you think, well, what does this mean for my for my post PhD career, my postdoc career, my academic life, what, how do I navigate that? I've been lucky to mm-hmm. have a lot of support. I've, I, I'm, you know, the, my department's very supportive. My family are very supportive. Um, but it is a juggle. It really is. I can't lie. It's like there's a lot of yeah. juggling, a lot of balancing, a lot of like extra hours that I didn't really anticipate. But you just have to do. Um, um, so yeah. It is. It is just a, a kind of, a, a kind of personal trajectory, and it has so many different factors that might be at play. But yeah, I think I think it's nice to share. It's nice to hear your personal experiences because, as I said, I think this is not something that is often talked about when people discuss post PhD careers. Um, and I think there's this idea in academia, perhaps because we're. We like what we do and we're interested in what we do that you have to sacrifice your personal life um, for it or it's fine to do that. But I think it's really important to talk about these things and kind of normalize. Yes, you know, um, you do also need to think about your personal life and that's a prior that can be an important priority in terms of choosing what type of route or what um, sort of career that you uh, you do take in academia. Um and I think, yes, there is a bit of choice in it, but I think it's also important to say perhaps um, it does come with a certain privilege to be able to kind of move across the country or to a different country yeah. uh, for your career. Not everyone is in a position to do that, perhaps in terms of caring responsibilities or having children or um, perhaps, you know, in terms of um, uh, having physical or mental mental um, health problems and things like that yeah, so absolutely. I think it 
it is a bit of a choice, but not not one without um, uh, without a privilege. I think to be able to do that. No, yeah. that's 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 so true. That's so true. Um, okay, so let's move on to something a bit more positive, perhaps. Um, <laughs> so, how does your um, uh, your work as a postdoc differ from your work as a PhD student? So, um, have you had any challenges in terms of the transition? Um, and do you have maybe more responsibilities as a postdoc that you didn't have as a PhD student? Um, I don't know if this applies to everyone's experience, but for me, I, I definitely felt like there was a lot more independence uh, and I, I think decisions did do fall on me more than they did um, PhD um, I think that's kind of an advantageous thing to be honest um, but you're still in a position to learn and be guided uh, but I think the guiding starts with you and not the other way around if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, and then I think like the thinking is slightly different it's like um, it's not necessarily about whether something is enough for a PhD. It's just more wider and and more generalized. I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, what about you, Carol? No, I agree with Bashak. There's definitely a lot more independence, and sometimes, you know, immediately after the PhD, sometimes you have to remind yourself that your role has changed slightly now, and um, where you would have wanted to maybe run everything past your PhD supervisor before it was okayed or finalized. Now it's more that you're you're calling the shots on that and you may ask of course you can still seek their advice uh, and their support for whatever it is that you're doing but it's less of um getting the okay from them now I feel like it's it's mm-hmm. more like yeah. um you're just maybe asking for a second set of eyes to look at something not necessarily looking for their approval before you submit um say yeah. a, a, you know, an application or a conference abstract or whatever it might be um so I think sometimes reminding yourselves that your role has changed and of course their role has changed because in your previous mm-hmm. role they would have been your PhD supervisor and now they're your line manager so their their responsibilities to you have shifted um as well mm-hmm. um, but of course they're still there to support you and help you with it with whatever you need and for training opportunities and whatnot and to learn from so but yeah it's just about establishing that independence and I'm feeling you know, having the confidence to do that as well, because it does, it definitely does take a bit of confidence to think actually, you know, it is okay. It, you know, it's it, it's good enough for me to, to take lead on this. And I'm, I know, I know what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that kind of leads on nicely to my next question. So I think, you know, both of you have mentioned that you're, you're doing or you've done your postdoctoral positions working with your PhD supervisors. So uh, I think one thing that people sometimes worry about is perhaps um, gaining that independence uh, after their PhD if they're still working with their PhD supervisor. So, um, yeah, I guess what, what what do you think of that? What has been your experience and how can people um, make sure that they do uh, establish themselves as an in- or begin to establish themselves as an independent researcher in that position? Um, uh, that's a difficult question. Take really your time. Difficult. It is it's, again it's like hard to know whether it's something that's applicable to everyone and I guess like you know you might want to escape as quickly as possible and you, you like can't wait until you submit the thesis um yeah I've I've carried on working with my supervisors and I've been able to to kind of ha- like take ownership of you know um, my work and um 
and I, I already had quite a lot of independence in my PhD so that kind of just continued um but yeah I mean I've also heard that you know people say a lot of things like people say you should you should go somewhere else you should get experience somewhere and again it's like yeah if you want to <laughs> do it mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's no like guidebook for how to be an academic as far as I know mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> if anybody's listening has that book please post it <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it's interesting um what you said like oh people say you should go to a different institution and I think I can see the benefit of that um in, in terms of developing yourself as a researcher. But I think also we shouldn't just say that just for the sake of saying it, you know, if you're going to a different institution um, rather than staying at your current, current institution, like I think there's that idea that changing institutions is always better, which I don't think necessarily is the case. And, you know, if that's not available to you because of, um, you know, your personal life or other reasons, you can still develop yourself as a researcher in the same institution that you did your PhD. You know, it's not the end of the world, um, I think, right? No, I'm saying you could you could stay in your institution, but just work with different people if you wanted to work yeah. with different people. I mean, yeah, I can see why mm-hmm. people say it, um, but it's, again, it that comes down to what opportunities are available, what choices are available to you. And mm-hmm. Sometimes that opportunity isn't available or, vice, you know, the, the, the flip side, there are great opportunities where you did your PhD. And, and mm-hmm. that, that was, sort of, for example, that was the case for me. So I, like it just made sense for me to, to stay where I am. And hence why fellowships might be a little bit um, not possible for me because they do prefer you to kind of move institution. But, you know, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, you're both at the National Addiction Centre, right? So, you know, it does sound like a pretty good place to be to do addiction research. Why would you want to move in, in some sense? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And especially if you're in a research area where there's only a handful of people who do that type of work, then it makes sense for you to be working with them. I mean, yeah. I couldn't propose to be anywhere else because there's nowhere else that's doing this type of work that I'm interested in. So I think it's, mm-hmm. it's just about having that rationale being clear about what the rationale for staying there is and I think if you know if the place where you have proposed to do your fellowship um is where you need to be and that happens to be the place where you did your PhD well that's that's where you need to be then and it's just about providing the rationale for that I guess but I I, like it is really tough it's really tough because not just because you you might not know where you want to go or what direction you have but even if you do have that in place it's tough because sometimes if those opportunities or those longer term opportunities aren't available, you do have to put up with uh, very less than ideal um, employment situations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be frank, it's it's not the it's not, uh, I you know, it's not great <laughs> because you no one really wants to live uh, not knowing what's going to happen after three to six months at a time. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've had lots and lots of people who have had that experience, um, not knowing about how they're going to, you know, how to um, organise their accommodation, housing, um, you know, personal lives are, are, you know, can be impacted. So so whilst all of this is um, based on like what opportunities are available, sometimes there there can be very little opportunity and and you feel like you have to take those because you're interested in the area or you're interested in this as a as a career trajectory um 
And I think that's a real shame and sad situation that I think is endemic to across all of academia. I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. what it's like in other countries, but um, and that's a real shame in in how you know things are here. But um, yeah, that's all. I have yeah, to say. <laughs> I think perhaps. <laughs> Um, it's helpful to kind of acknowledge these things and highlight to people that these are not the only options. And obviously today we're talking mainly about academic careers, but, you know, um, it it is a shame if people have to leave academia because of these reasons. But also, as we said earlier, you know, you also have a life that you need to, you need to manage alongside your career. And also, you know, you do need to pay pay the rent and all that fun stuff. So, you know, um, if you do have to get a job outside outside of academia, that's, that's should not be the end of the world or should not be seen as a failure, perhaps because it is able to give that stability more than some of the academic positions that we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see this being different. And I'm sure everyone would. I'm sure, you know, we all know that the, the restrictions are to do with funding. But, I, I, you mm. know, ideally, we, sh- we, we should really be in a situation where we can say to PhD students that are finishing and who are interested in continuing that they can have, you know, a longer term kind of um, plan. Because, yeah, otherwise, how do you plan your life? <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Did you have anything to add to that? Just echoing what Bashek has already said about the difficulty with short-term contracts. And as I said, you know, I, I'm on a secondment for 10 months um, for a teaching fellow position. And I only really had, before that position became available to me, I had about six months funding left on my, five or six months funding left on my bridging uh, grant with the SSI. And I couldn't, see, I hadn't secured a fellowship um, at that stage. And I mean, I still haven't. Um, mm-hmm. But I was in a position where I wasn't quite sure what the future was going to be post that five or six months. Um, so whenever this opportunity as a teaching fellow come up, it was as much as I, you know, I really enjoy teaching and, and I really enjoy the task and I'm happy to, you know, have I've gotten the opportunity. But it almost felt like I had 10 months breather. <laughs> you know, I knew that for the 10 months after the after my five months, you know, that it's going to be, I'll be able to... Um, yeah, still pay the bills, I guess. So it's, it's yeah. just an extra 10 months of funding, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of, well, it takes, yeah, it takes the pressure, it takes the pressure off a little bit because it is a really stressful time when you finish your PhD and and uh, yeah. you go on to whatever short-term contract that might be available to you. But it really, it's just um, prolongs, it prolongs the agony of unemployment. That, you know, <laughs> yeah. <it's> just, <laughs> It just it gives you an extra twelve months to um to worry about being sort yourself out. Yeah, <laughs> I do think it's I do think it's helpful for people to be aware of the reality and not have um unreasonable well un- unrealistic expectations, you know. And I think it does help people if other people are talking about these experiences and kind of sharing their same difficulties because I think there's a, a bit of a culture perhaps um where these things are not often talked about. So I think I do think, uh, whilst being a little depressing, I think it's good to share these things and have a conversation about it, yeah. Yeah, but these opportunities do come up. I mean, if they are short-term contracts, yeah. yes, it's not ideal, but these opportunities do come up mm. along the way. And, you know, this teaching opportunity, it's, you know, it's great to have that experience. So it's not, you know, it's not just prolonging my, my employment mm-hmm. for a little bit, but it's yeah. also giving me valuable experience that will, you know, that I'll always that I'll always have mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so it's yeah. uh yeah sometimes these things can be a blessing really because yeah, then you do have the opportunity mm-hmm. to take on different opportunities 
um, I guess, yeah, what I was going to ask is, you know, how do you manage uh, this level of uncertainty in your career? Like what has helped you to manage that feeling? I think one thing I do seem, I do get from what you've discussed is maybe being open to different opportunities, you know, the teaching fellow that Carol has got and also considering your um, personal priorities alongside your career. So I guess, yeah, what would you advise PhD students or early career researchers in your position trying to get on the academic uh, career ladder? (laughs) Um, Can I just say, for me, the most important thing that I have to keep reminding myself even now is you just cannot take things personally or to be too disheartened by rejection because it's everywhere and we all go through it and we're all in the same boat and I don't think that you can really progress Mm -hmm. without having those obstacles um and also like I said before never ever underestimate the benefits of reaching out to people in your department uh you know in your institution outside wherever and and that's you know postdocs or beyond as well um I agree with everything Bishaka said but just really about finding out what motivates you and what is it that you're particularly interested in and where you want to um where you want your career to go and kind of keeping that as your end goal and there may be hiccups along the way uh, but it really is about building blocks isn't it and just stepping stones to get you to where you need to be um, and also brace embrace new opportunities just whatever comes your way give it you know give it thought and if it's definitely something that you, you're not interested in don't be don't be scared to say no to it but equally um, some things are just there to challenge us and, and it's good to take these on and just embrace it just put yourself out there make sure that people know that you're willing you know you're wanting to get involved in different research projects and be willing to collaborate with other people because even small collaborations can lead to something more significant Um, I know other people have have learned a lot from having um, mentors and people to advocate for them and to guide them a little bit within their career so things like that can be be really helpful to have a mentor um, and somebody who's maybe been through it uh, before as well and just really about getting people who who here happy to support you and and give you some time uh, to chat to to figure out well you know what kind of direction do you want to to go in um but i think the the key bit of it is is just communicating with people making sure that your supervisor your line manager people within your department know who you are know what your research interest is and and you know what kind of position you're looking for mm-hmm yeah, I think I think that's really valuable. Having a bit of initiative, talking to people, trying to have an idea about where you'd like to end up, but perhaps being open to taking some different routes along the way um, to progress your career. Yeah, I think that's really useful. Yeah, I mean, I've really enjoyed this and this has been a really interesting discussion about academia as well, <laughs> which was not entirely intended, but... <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> well, it hasn't been too daunting. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I guess to finish off, we could sort of uh, briefly talk about maybe the positive aspects of your job that you do enjoy. Um, I, you know, it is um, the reason why you do go to it is is worth it in the end, right? So <laughs> um, there must be something in it. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, you have to find it interesting. I do like compare the work I do, the day-to-day work I do with um, like my partner who's a teacher. And it's just mm-hmm. such a, like, there's such different thinking involved um and it's like I have to really enjoy this I mean I know that's not a very good comparison but when you when your work is not as prescriptive is what I'm trying to say you know you're kind of going along with it in your own pace 
you're guiding the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think maybe you're saying the flexibility yeah. um, and also doing something you're interested in, taking it way where you want to take it, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. There is some creativity in academia. Mm-hmm. I know it doesn't feel like it maybe sometimes, but there is. And um, and I, for me, like I'm excited and motivated by the work because... I you know I can't, I do I'm a, I'm reminded about it actually in from the news about like overdose deaths I see it all the time and I'm like oh that's related to what I'm doing and that that kind of feeds into mm-hmm. um why I'm doing what I do as well so yeah like it's also thinking about the impact of the work you do and you know it sounds like you're quite passionate about this and seeing seeing the actual impact on on people's lives that this could make is an important aspect of it mm-hmm but also like for me it's um I know that where I am now and the work I'm doing now I know that not many people are doing and that kind of gets me quite you know like it gets me motivated and that's quite exciting as well and I know that I'm in the kind of the best place to do that at the moment so yeah I think that's plenty of reasons Carol do you have any more to add to that wow I don't know where to go from there (laughs) (laughs) but I totally I mean everything I mean you have to be passionate about about what you do um it has to excite you it has to entice you doesn't it and I think one of the thing that keeps one of the things that keeps me um particularly interested is reading some work that you know researchers have done before me people who are experts within the field and knowing that I'm building upon that knowledge and contributing to that as well and whatever you you know you've got a research publication or whatnot and and you see it's been cited by somebody who you've been like following their work for years because they're amazing at what at what they do and they've kind yeah. of carved the way and and then they're recognizing your work and and then maybe one day you can collaborate with them and network with them and have some correspondence with them i think that's really exciting and i think a career in academia it's all about isn't it knowledge production and kind of enhancing the field and expanding upon what we already know so that's quite exciting you're kind of building and you can build your own little niche can't you you know it's your own little research interest that you can kind of harness and look after and yeah I think that that is a really exciting aspect of it definitely yeah I think we're gonna have to call it uh, call it a day <laughs> um, but yeah thank you so much this has been a really interesting discussion and um, I think it'll be a useful one for people to listen to when they're thinking about their next steps after their PhD yeah thank you very much thank you So welcome to the PhD Addicted to Research podcast. In this episode, uh, in this podcast, we talk about our experiences of doing a PhD. And this episode is focusing on transitioning from PhD to postdoc. And as you've been key to the development of um, SSA's bridging fund from the PhD to postdoc, we wanted to talk to you about this. So firstly, could you introduce yourself a little and tell us a little bit about your uh, your role with the SSA? Yeah, sure. I'm delighted to. Uh, so I'm John Strang. Uh, I head up the addictions group at the National Addiction Centre down at King's College London. And uh, my... Uh, my own background is that originally I trained as a medic and then trained in psychiatry. Uh, but when I had the opportunity to work properly in the addictions field, it just uh, felt comfortable straight away. It was like sort of putting on a familiar jacket or overcoat and it just it just felt right. I'm a really bad role model to do with PhDs in that I didn't do it 
when I should have done and then had to do it later on in my career, which was much more difficult. But. So in terms of the uh, bridging fund, I think it's now referred to as, what is it referred to as, the transition to postdoc? Uh, you'll have to tell me what the exact title is. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> it, it certainly, it, it's a postdoctoral transitional support and um and it and key features of it well it it exists within um a, a group of commitments from the ssa uh to mm-hmm. to support academic growth that uh, w- yeah. that within the uk we have some good scientific contribution but we need to to be stronger contributors and a larger body of contributors mm. and that's part of the SSA's mm-hmm. commitment is to to help people at different stages so but what was clear a few years ago was that there was a there was a big gap there were very very yeah. talented people finishing their PhDs mm-hmm. and then there was a gap before they could find a way of developing themselves further in the addictions field. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just about to say that, you know, obviously there's the PhD uh, fund and there um, there's the fellowship fund and most um, funding bodies tend to, tend to provide these sorts of funds. But, you know, going from PhD to fellowship is actually, you need quite a bit of experience and you need to develop yourself further as an independent researcher so you know in my view this is filling a really important gap so it's really interesting to hear from your perspective as well um you've explained this a little bit but um what do you think were the aims and the objectives of this fund yeah i i think it was very it was very much an awareness that there was um you know even from a strategic point of view that there was talent Mm. that was uh, re- re- was reaching its graduation from a PhD scheme and then mm-hmm. was being lost to the addictions field. You know, it might go off and deal mm-hmm. with... That good graduates from their PhDs were going off and working in other very worthy fields, but they weren't supporting mm-hmm. the substance use field particularly. And um, th- that awareness... I think the other key aspects were that uh, we very much wanted there to be leverage on the universities where these PhD students and graduates were were working, and and the early and the mm-hmm. early postdocs would would be working. So uh, the the scheme is a partnership scheme. It basically it says to the university, you know, if you come up with a degree of support for this this fresh postdoc you know, who's just become a postdoc uh then uh the SSA will co-support it with the university um and so it it isn't a scheme in its entirety it's a light touch scheme that uh mm-hmm. that supports the universities to support good students that should be helped to stay in the field yeah. Um, so in terms of a, a PhD student who receives this funding, what are you expecting them to spend their time doing in that year to develop their career? We're, we're deliberately, we deliberately allow that to be defined to a large extent by the, the, the new postdoc 
and the supervisor mm-hmm. and the university they're working with. But the purpose behind it is is to help them achieve a degree of independence at the end of that year. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. now we wouldn't expect somebody at that stage in their career to be an independent researcher, but um, mm-hmm. but we we would be seeing that as a time when they became part of a a new research study that was setting you know that was starting off or um or securing their first uh, sort of early fellowship support or uh, mm-hmm. it, it's to it, it's to it's to ease them over that difficult time from that euphoria of having you know, uh, had their viva and been told it's the most wonderful piece of work that's ever been done, mm-hmm. and that that you know they are now sort of you know, Doctor X. You know, um, yeah. Uh, and then they suddenly go, "What? What happens now?" And this is to say, okay, th- this allows you and your supervisor and the group you're working with a bit of space in which to work out what your next few years should be. I think that's really valuable because, you know, like you said, people can finish their PhD and they find themselves in this void, you know, what is the next step? And, you know, writing up the PhD and finishing and preparing for Viva can be really um, busy periods themselves. So sometimes people don't necessarily get that much time to plan something for immediately after the PhD so this is a good place to kind of think about what you want to do where you might want your career to go to and then take uh, take action to prepare yourself for that. Let me mention two things that the SSA scheme is not about so um, sure yeah that's yeah, a good idea so it that sometimes a PhD student will be struggling to get their thesis finished and submitted and um and those are not the area that this scheme is to deal with this scheme is to do with that period after the award of the phd now we Mm -hmm. are willing Mm -hmm. to consider it we're we're sort of flexible about exactly at what point but but the thesis certainly has to be submitted by the time somebody be considered so that's one area the other area that it isn't is to do with people wanting to write up papers from their PhD. Okay, that's actually really interesting. Yeah, because I know some other uh, fellowships like this are actually focusing on writing up data from your PhD. So it's good to know that this definitely isn't for that. <laughs> you know, we're not against people writing up papers from mm-hmm. their PhD, but this is the the transitional bit in the title is significant. This is for people to to help them make the next step, and um, mm-hmm. the writing up of your papers is academically important, but it still means mm-hmm. that at the end of six months to a year. Uh, you haven't worked out where you're going next. And this is meant to be mm-hmm. to help you navigate what your next step is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really important to clarify. So, yeah, I guess my next question was about the criteria that you're looking for in people who apply for this fund. So are there particular characteristics that you're looking for when you're selecting um, newly finished PhD candidates? Yeah, um, 
were very much guided by the host university and the decision mm -hmm. they make about their willingness to do the co-support uh, for the student and um, were also wanting the student to be able to articulate how their area of work uh, fits with the objectives of the society. So, that, so the student would need to be able to articulate how their not only their PhD, but their line of intended work fitted the SSA's objectives. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a quick note, would you say the host university would have to be where they've done their PhD or any university that's willing to host them and where they have a potential um, supervisor or mentor? Yeah, it's, it's the second of those. It's that uh, w what the society is wanting to know is that there is an appropriate home for yeah. that recent phd graduate and um that mm -hmm. may well you know, that would often be the university where they've done their phd but there's no requirement for it to mm -hmm. be so mm -hmm. um and i know for another similar scheme P students are not uh, allowed to choose their phd supervisor as their main supervisor so do you have a similar criteria or is no that that's allowed we we do we would presume that the suggested supervisor um, in the postdoctoral phase was already interested in the addictions field and an SSA member but I mean mm -hmm. I think it would be strange if they weren't mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah sure um, it sounds quite similar to the PhD fund because I remember speaking to Matt Hickman about it as well for the podcast so looking at the host and the, and the supervisor and also how the research match matches with SSA's um, aims and objectives so in terms of the selection process what is that like so people submit an application um, once they've at least submitted their PhD and then their application can be considered at that point uh, so we we try to do a very quick turnaround uh, within a few weeks uh, from applications and they can be at any point of the year uh, because of course the, the point at which a student w will finish their thesis and have their viva and such you know is highly variable um, so uh, we have a deliberately quick turnaround process which doesn't involve being called for interview so it's done from the application that's submitted and that can be done at any point of the year we're very much guided by uh, the the application that the graduating PhD student uh, mm -hmm. submits and by the willingness from the proposed host university to match fund what the society mm -hmm. uh, supports mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's a light touch process, which is hopefully yeah. quick to implement. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because a lot of these applications can take a very long time. And um, yeah, I think it's helpful that you get a decision quite quickly um, and then you can, you know, get started with your postdoc or apply for something else if it doesn't work out. Yeah, um, I think my final question is, do you have any general tips for PhD students who are about to finish and make the transition to postdoc and start their academic careers? Yeah, gosh, I mean, that's probably <laughs> the most difficult of all the questions. Um, yeah, I, I, I think probably it's an honest acknowledgement that it's quite a challenging track, um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the academic track. And um, there may be other tracks which are safer, but... 
But the academic track is un- undoubtedly exciting yeah, and gives a different sort of opportunity. And mm-hmm. uh, it probably does involve having an approach to it where uh, you're much more willing to, to to listen and to look around you at how both the nature of the problem one's talking about, but also societal responses might be changing. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to be prepared to change your own thinking and change the type of work that you do over time. Mm-hmm. Um, some people would find that unsettling uh, mm-hmm. and view it negatively. Personally, mm-hmm. I think it's what makes the addictions field or the substance use field endlessly fascinating because mm-hmm. whatever area you've been working on, you, you don't need to worry about how to keep it fresh and interesting because it's constantly evolving. And, yeah. and so the science itself is constantly evolving. So mm. there's actually a lot of scope, but you have to have a you have to have an attitude to life and to work where where you accept that you don't quite know what twist and turn will occur in the years mm. ahead. Yeah. I, I, yes. I, I personally see that as a real positive Mm-hmm. Um, but I accept that for some people that's not what they're looking for, in mm-hmm. which case it's a less sensible choice. Uh, yeah. But if you like those changes uh, and the ability to have those changes, then I think the academic track is very exciting and mm-hmm. the addictions and substance use field are a super territory in which so many different facets Uh, come into play that Mm -hmm. it's the best area to work in. I think what you're saying is to kind of be prepared to evolve with changes in the field and perhaps not be stuck in um, certain topics or certain areas and move on. Yeah, I I think that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. That was really informative and really interesting hearing about your experiences and your thoughts on the um, postdoctoral funding. And thanks for joining us for the podcast.